It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Welcome back, everybody. It's Liz. So happy you're here. I was thinking about February and March, and because I'm a parent, they mean so much more than the end of winter and the start of spring, right? It's also college acceptance letter season. So many kids today have it ingrained in their heads that where you go to college determines how your future will unfold. That if you don't get into an Ivy League school or your first choice of school, you're somehow doomed. Well, let my guest today totally prove that wrong. He was rejected by his first and only choice, an Ivy League school, Princeton. The hard work and time he put in to get accepted was all for nothing. And because he put all his eggs in one basket, he found himself at high school graduation with nowhere to attend university. But that's when the fight kicked in. The kid whose first job was at age six selling newspapers at a subway stop just south of Harlem fired up his tenacity. Not only did he end up at a great university in the Midwest, he grew to become one of the top venture capitalists in the world. Here to talk about how he turned his stumbling blocks into stepping stones is Alan Patrikoff. What a list of companies he's either founded or co-founded. Apex, Graycroft, and now Prime Time Partners. Alan, thank you so much for being here and joining us. What a great story, and I can't wait for our Everyone Talks to Liz listeners to hear it. How are you? I'm great. I'm very excited about my new business, Prime Time Partners, which I started at age 85, uh, which is a little unusual. <laughs> I would say you just you just take a licking and keep on kicking, although you really haven't been been hit at the knees too much throughout your career because you just almost chose not to notice any walls that came up, but that's what I want our listeners to hear, your climb. But let's let's go back to your childhood in New York City, son of Russian immigrants. Yes, my father came over from Smila, which was a small town outside of Kiev in 1907, uh, in steerage, of course, and my mother came over sometime in 1910 or something mm-hmm. like that, from uh, Belarus, I don't know exactly what town, and uh, started out with absolutely nothing and uh, didn't leave me too much uh, in the way of financial resources. So I had to do most of my climbing on my own. Six years old, your first gig, and that was hawking newspapers, right? I think my father just sent me out and said, you know, go find out what it's like to earn a buck. And so tell me about that as best you can remember. God, you asked me to remember a long time ago, but I I actually have a vision of my standing next to the subway on 103rd Street in New York City with one of the, at that time, you'd have a bag around your uh, neck, Mm -hmm. which hung, and you had these, I sold Saturday Evening Post, to be exact, uh, for five cents at the time. Uh, So, uh, you know, it was the beginning of my long career. Can you imagine a six-year-old? out on the street selling papers today. We really should have that in America so people get the sense, although I know there are a lot of child labor laws, but a sense of bootstrapping and getting out there and really realizing what a hard day's work means. Well, my father had a very tough growing up. For him to, to do something like, like that was mm-hmm. 
like his childhood had, had been in the Midwest and Middletown, Ohio. You know, Where, back back of course to you mentioned Kiev, which then was all part of Russia. Of course, today Ukraine. My ancestors came from Odessa, which used to be Russia. And is now, of course, Ukraine. So that immigrant spirit, what do you feel that you really gleaned from it as you then forged ahead as a teenager and then an adult? I think the major thing I got from my father and somewhat to my mother is uh, they were depression people who lived and knew what it was like not to have very much. And uh, uh, I always remember my father uh, never had a credit card, not that in those days there weren't credit cards until Diners Club came in. I don't remember what year that was, but he believed if you couldn't buy something for cash, uh, he wouldn't buy it. So he lived uh, without, he just did not believe in debt. So he had no, he didn't leave me any financial obligations to take care of for him. Let's get you to high school where you had your sights on Princeton. Yeah, well, I went to a school. My parents, uh, you know, over the years uh, took education as being much more important than anything else. And they sacrificed a great deal to get my sister and I to uh, my sisters uh, to decent private schools, which was very inexpensive in those days. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I went to Horace Mann, it was the kind of school that everybody went to an Ivy League school. They went to you know, Harvard, Yale, or Princeton, or Amherst, or Williams. You could just go down the line. And so it was almost taken for granted. And uh, I had my heart set on Princeton. I had applied to a couple of other schools that I turned down. Uh, because I was wait I was on the waiting list for Princeton, and then oh. in June I didn't get into Princeton, and here I was graduating from this fancy private school and and having no college, so I had to start applying right then, and uh, I applied to four schools uh, in June, which is pretty late, and actually got into all four of them. It was uh, uh, it was Columbia. Penn, uh, Brandeis, and Ohio State, and I was going to go to Brandeis, and uh, uh, I had been accepted. I, w I was accepted all four, and uh, I went to a formation meeting in New York, and uh, it was very early on in Brandeis, and it was, when I walked into the room, it was a very, very religious group that mm -hmm. was there at the time, Jewish. which made me nervous that I was going into something I wasn't prepared for. So I uh, turned around and came home that night and pasted the label for Ohio State over the label for Brandeis uh, because my father uh, had gone a year or two to Ohio State. He, was, he had emigrated to, to uh, Ohio. And uh, I had no idea what it was like. I had never been there and uh, went to a new environment. And uh, uh, that was, uh, I actually graduated in three years because at least the Horace Mann uh, credits uh, were advanced. I had enough AP that I could accelerate and I graduated in three years. So you became a Buckeye. I found that fabulous because I, I spent seven and a half years in Ohio doing local news in Columbus, three and a half years oh, of wow. it, and then Cleveland. And I love I love Ohio. And me, an L.A. girl, you would think. Uh, I wrote for the Columbus Citizen while I was the Ohio Oh State. my gosh. Yeah. So, okay. So you were a little journalist yourself there. But, you know, what do you glean from that moment where you realized, I, I'm left with 
no college. I, I've got to kick into gear. What was it within you that got you moving? And, and can you somehow articulate why people should not completely collapse when something unexpected happens that isn't exactly what you think is good? Well, I think that I, you know, I was quite uh, upset about not going where I wanted. Yeah. And I was disappointed to the extent that I just wanted to get away. And that's why I didn't go to Columbia or Penn. I didn't want to be around all the people I knew from from Horace Mann. I, I was pretty depressed at the moment. Brandeis, I would have been the only one going there. and But I, I went to Ohio State. I think I'm the only one who went to Ohio State from any place uh, in those days. And, uh, you know, I'm just a resilient person. I don't give up very easily. And that path led you somewhere where you might not have actually gone had you attended Princeton. Do you ever look at it like that? No, uh, I don't. Well, it's, it's very possible. I never thought about it, but I, my father had was a stockbroker, and uh, uh, so I always had kind of followed the market. So I had an interest in the market, and uh, it seemed like to me the natural place to go. Uh, I had a couple of job offers that would have been, landed me in the Midwest, one in Chicago, and Moline, Illinois, with Caterpillar, and the other one with the National Bank of Detroit. I can't now, today. 50 or 60 years later, envision myself living there or living any place but New York. So, uh, you know, everything. I have no complaints the way things worked out. Don't you feel that everything really does happen for a reason? Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, it's interesting. I go to a reunion. You know, crazy. We have a reunion for our class in Horace Mann. Uh, there aren't that many people who attend. I think we're down to about eight. We never were more than 12 or 13. And we have lunches every three or four months. And uh, I I must say I have to smile because when I go because they usually set the lunch up near my office since I'm the only one that's still working. Uh, I'm, the, I'm the only one that th- doesn't have hearing aids. I'm the only one that doesn't have a walker or a cane. So uh, whatever I've done... Uh, uh, and I think I've done relatively well compared to the others. Oh, yeah. And, and some of them, I'm sure, did do the Ivy League dance. They, all, they all did. They all did. Exactly. So there, we've got that message out. I want to talk about the generation that you came from and how back then there really weren't a ton of venture capitalists. No, when I when I by the story of my getting my first job is an interesting one. When I came to New York. I didn't have a job, just like I didn't have a college. I didn't have a job. There were no recruiters, certainly at Ohio State. I don't know if there were any place then. Uh, today, there are hundreds of them that visit the campuses to try to get graduates to, to join their firm. Uh, so I didn't have you know, access to the Lehman Brothers or Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley or anyone else at that time. So I had a, a really uh, wear out shoe leather, as they say. Uh, I came to New York. And uh, I decided to work on Wall Street. So if you want to work on Wall Street, I went to Wall Street. And I started out at like 120 Wall Street or 130 Wall Street at the bottom near the East River and went into every building, went up the elevator to the top floor and then walked down the stairs because in those days there weren't security in every building. There was no security. You just – it was a free and easy. Exactly. It was very much much easier. And I – go to every floor to a receptionist and say, are there any jobs available? And uh, it took me about three or four months. 
And uh, I got to 63 Wall Street, and that's where I got my job from the top floor, I must say, of that building. And, okay, so three and four months, you never gave up. Did you feel a little bit sort of, what's the word I'm looking for, demoralized? No, I never was discouraged. I mean, Wall Street's very long. (laughs) If (laughs) if I only got to 63, I mean, I had all the way to one. Uh, Where, by the way, years later, I ended up at two, two Wall Street at another job, so afterwards. So I started out at 63 and... Ended up, not ended up. And the job at 63 Wall Street, what was that? It was a very, very elegant, uh, prestigious investment counseling firm. And frankly, I'll never know why they took me because (laughs) they were the partner, senior partner was uh, the uh, senior, had been the senior economist at Goldman Sachs. And the other two uh, partners had come from a very prominent Wall Street uh, firms and uh, uh, they had all gone to Yale or Harvard, and for some reason the receptionist got me an appointment, and uh, a, an old-fashioned Yaley interviewed me, and I was hired as a junior analyst, and uh, uh, it all, you know, started there, and it, I started in a great place, and you, if you start out well, you can parlay that into subsequent positions that, you know, build on that reputation. Sure. Uh, Persistence, certainly. But I want to fast forward to where you began to realize there was a real opportunity to take capital and invest in companies that were starting up and not necessarily a sure thing. No, that that happened uh, in my fourth job. I wasn't it sounds like a lot, but it wasn't that much. I was at the, this position for seven or eight years, actually. Uh, and uh, it was a family office. And I was uh, one of the senior people there, not running it. And uh, the senior partner was always being approached by uh, one of the titans of Wall Street, names which were at those those days were very household names for you know, people like Andre Maier from Lazard, Gus Levy from Goldman Sachs, all the famous people would, would call up the senior partner I work for and offer them a, a position in some new company they were financing. And uh, traditionally, the fa- family offices invested only in well-known stocks of the New York Stock Exchange. But over time, they would accumulate these certificates and investments in companies they knew nothing about. So they spent all their time analyzing major companies and they'd put the stock certificates in a drawer or the paperwork related to it. And I was the only person in the company who was interested in these odd companies. And during this period of time, which were in the 60s, I, uh, one of the things we looked at was New York Magazine. And I was the one who did the analysis mm-hmm was the person who was involved in it, became very deeply involved in it, and uh, subsequently became chairman of the board of the company. Uh, And at the same time, I started a medical electronics company, backed one, and a company in the TV radio business called Lynn Broadcasting. And uh, all those companies have subsequently been bought and sold many times. This is Everyone Talks to Liz, and we'll be right back.
We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listen Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clayman. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clayman right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clayman. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I want our listeners to know about a company that came on your radar called Apple. I don't even think there was officially a venture capital industry at that time. It was just investing in deals. Mm -hmm. And uh, it became, you might say, an industry in the 70s when uh, it is uh, uh, the National Venture Capital Association was formed in like 74 or so. So uh, Apple was just another investment that we had, that we went, went into through the fund and it came about through a relationship I had. Uh, and uh, I would like to say I was brilliant and found this, you know, uh, isolated little invisible company, but it was very early. It had only been in business for a year or two. Mm-hmm. And uh, someone I knew uh, who was an investment banker called me up one day and uh, said he had an opportunity to invest a small amount of money, uh, to put together an investment of a small amount of money in this new early stage company. But uh, how'd they describe Apple to you at that point? Uh, well, I knew about it because I had, you know, one of the things, if you're in the venture business, you learn to see what's trends are happening. Mm-hmm. And I had been very much aware of the beginnings of the personal computer market, which, you know, was Commodore business machines and oh, Texas yeah. instruments. And those were the uh, earliest. And then Apple came on the scene and uh, uh, there had been several articles about this new PC uh, operation out in, in, in uh, California. And so when the, the opportunity came up, uh, I spoke with the, uh, the management once over the phone and uh, we made a we had a small fund at that time we invested uh, $315,000 in the company uh, and we ultimately ultimately being not that many years later 3 4 years after they went public we distributed the stock to our investors so you know no one stayed for the 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 full run oh. uh, although i had calculated in connection with my new book, uh, No Red Lights, which you know that I just wrote, oh, yeah. uh, which tells a lot of these stories. I, While I was writing the book, I kept having a model developed so we could keep track of the price so I'd be accurate when the last <laughs> f- uh, draft was done. And it was uh, a value of seven, it would have been a value of $7 billion. Oh my God. Uh, Wait, so 315000 yeah. would have become $7 billion? Just shows you the value of compounding. And, and if, you, <laughs> exactly. if only I had stayed with that, I wouldn't have to do anything else. I could, I wouldn't even be here today. Uh, but I, I'm, you know, you never know. In the venture business, 
there are very, very, very rare situations when someone stays forever because right. we're all well, in they funds. they want to cash out. They also yeah. want to get their initial exactly. investment yeah. back. Our funds have a all have a terminal life to them, and the whole success of, of being in the venture business is to raise successive funds. In order to raise successive funds, you have to demonstrate some successes, and uh, Apple was just one of many things that I sold along the way that, that I wish I held forever. <laughs> I bet. Well, throughout your time, you have made some very interesting investments. I want to talk about the real, real, the resale website, which I am a huge fan of. I will now no longer buy full price brand new retail designer bags because of the real, real. Why bother? You get great stuff there. They vet it. And it's certainly a lot less expensive. What do you need to see in a company like that before you'll commit capital? Well, you want to see management. I mean, it's always the same thing. It's it, it's always, the, I, mean, I hate to make a cliched expression, but you always want to bet on the jockey, not the horse. Mm. Uh, it, and you, if you have a, a, a great jockey, if they pick the wrong idea and it's not working, they can pivot and do something else and reorient the capital. If the if you're betting on a product and it doesn't work, uh, you've got a problem because there's no one else to lead the company to do something else. So uh, uh, in that case, it was a woman entrepreneur who was uh, very talented and understood this business and had a Julie good Wainwright. Con- yeah, she had a good concept. Uh, she had had a startup before that had not worked out, mm-hmm. uh, which is good because in our world, uh, a prior failure is not a sign of death. It's a sign of experience. Good. Uh, and uh, as I understand it, I haven't seen her in a year or so, uh, but I think she's now going on to start another company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, she put together a team, and uh, it's a very complicated process, what she does. Yeah. With the real, real. I hope you sell to them as well as buy. Uh, I've... I- I'm too much of a hoarder. I can't let things go, but I, I think about it. And I will say this, that as you describe what you look for in a company, what do you look for when you're hiring people? We have listeners who would like to be hired out there for their passionate areas of interest. And, you know, sometimes they think to themselves, oh, I'm not I'm not a good candidate because I, A, might not have experience in that particular area, even though I want to go into it, or B, I didn't go to a great school. What do you say to people like that? Well, I say to them, uh, I went to Ohio State. Which is a great <laughs> uh, school, but Yes, I mean, but no, but it's not, it's not in the, t- I mean, I'm being very openly, mm-hmm. most people who are in the higher in the financial world did go to one of the Ivy League schools. And so I think there are plenty of exceptions around, but it is the exception. And uh, But that that uh, college that you go to, once you pass the first job, it's not no one's really looking at that intensely, uh, frankly. And I don't know if you're, are you speaking of getting a job or starting a company? Um, let's talk about getting a job. Not all of our listeners are entrepreneurial in their ideas. We have many of them. But people who are looking for uh, maybe, you know, changing course midstream. Honestly, I mean, it's a very hard thing to change course midstream. I uh, uh, Let me 
explain it a different way. I think if you're a young person and you don't like the career you're in, mm -hmm. the best way to morph into another industry is to go to business school or go to some graduate school and come out of there and go to do something else. It's amazing how you can have that experience uh, whereas if you're in the real estate business and you want to go in the investment business directly, it's a hard it's hard to segue. Mm. So I think that that that's the one major advantage of going into a business school. But if you just traditionally want to get a job, I think you have to be smart and you have to have personality and you have to have a lot of patience. You have to kiss a lot of frogs, be prepared to be turned down a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we're in a reasonably good environment today, even though. You read about what's happening in the paper. Our employment is pretty low, relatively, and uh, uh, the technology world certainly has opportunities. Uh, I think, you know, traditional companies are a great place to, to look at. I would bet that recruiting from General Motors or IBM, IBM has a very interesting approach today, which is, I, I forget the percentage, but there is a specific percentage uh, which they call their skill soft or something like that, where they do not require college. They specifically have a program of hiring non-college people. I love that. I love that. I mean, it's a Gina Rometty is started. Rometty, about, yeah, yeah. Rometty yeah, yeah. started about, she says all the time that her, her husband complains that she does, that people don't pronounce her last <laughs> name properly. Uh, I get clamming instead of claiming. Uh, and she uh, and uh, she started this program because she saw there were a lot of talented people who didn't go to college. So, you've talked a lot about back then and at my age. How old are you? Eighty-eight. Eighty-eight. Okay. We just spoke to a guy who runs a cruise ship company, and. A lot of elderly people are signing up for a three-year cruise around the world because the cost of it, with food included and a doctor on staff 24 hours, is actually less than senior living care, which has gotten so expensive. That's where your passion lies now. You've become an investor in companies that focus on what you call prime time. Where are we heading in the graying of America well, I, uh, it's a field I'm very passionate about, uh, and I am tired of reading about ageism, mm -hmm. uh, which starts at the top, our president, uh, who, from every standpoint, if you watch what he's accomplished in the last uh, year or two, it's pretty amazing in terms of legislation he's gotten through and initiatives. Uh, but you go across, and you go across the world, most world leaders are or many world leaders, I should say, are people over the age of 60 and, and even over the age of 70. Uh, I think we are headed now for a population growth in the over 60 market that will result by 2030 of more people over 60 than there are under 18. They're, they say today, I mean, reliable sources that uh, half of the kids that are born today will live to be over 100. Uh, uh, David Sinclair, who's one of the authorities in this aging area, has said, and I'm not going to support it, but I'm telling you what he said, and he's an authority, that there is someone alive today who will live to 150. Uh, the oldest person alive today, I think, is about 121. Hmm. Uh, but the uh, percentage of population is growing very fast. They're all born. The people are going to live longer. People are living longer. They have 
more money to spend. They're probably healthier because of exercise and, and biologics and pharmaceuticals that have kept people longer. And you can avoid a lot of the things that we couldn't avoid before in terms of serious diseases. So, uh, and if you follow my belief, which in my book, No Red Lights, <laughs> I say I'm going to live to 114. If, if anyone believes that uh, and they're 60, uh, they have half their life yet to live. And uh, I started primetime because of the fact that I saw a couple of people I knew who were being pushed into forced retirement at age 60 because their firm had a regulation. A lot of the law firms, a lot of the accounting firms, my original firm that I built, Apex, didn't didn't refer to me, but has a rule that anyone over sixty has to leave. That's just uh, nuts. I don't uh, like at that. At the prime of your life, when you got the best rolodex, when you know more people, when you have great skills in the Experience. field you're in. Experience. Yeah. And if you you as far as I I believe you can go back into the same business you were in, start all over again, or follow your passion. And you got an opportunity now with retirement and 401ks and social security. You've got ability to, and a nest egg perhaps you built up, you know, do something you've always wanted to do, you know, like become a doctor, become a lawyer, become a poet. Uh, so I think that uh, the older age, the elderly market is a great opportunity for investment. And I think that older people should be thinking positively about what to do with the last half of their life. You are such an inspiration. And for those of you listening, I've known Alan for quite some time now. But after I read his book, I said, oh, my God, i got to get him on because what an incredible story that is far from over, far from over. Alan, thank you so much. I have to think about about chapter four, <laughs> what I'm going to do next. Of, you know, I ran the marathon in November. I was the oldest person that finished the marathon. Are you kidding? What was your time? Well, the time at, at my stage, time is not important. It's the finishing that's important. <laughs> I know. It was eight hours, but uh, I God got God bless I you. Yeah, and was that your first marathon? Oh no, I ran it at very good times. But I was uh, <laughs> at forty-seven. I ran it at three thirty-one. Whoa! But those days, I was running uh, to be as fast as I could. And the, today, the objective is just to finish. I also went to Burning Man last year. Oh, uh, you are sizzling well, hot. Well, I, I want to be an inspiration and tell people, you know, don't cash in your chips and go play golf in Florida. Do something interesting with your life. You are an inspiration. And I thank you for sharing that with our listening audience. Thanks so much, Alan. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, so keep going, everybody. He says he's going to go to 114, and we hope it's longer. And for us, Monday through Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern, you're going to need to protect and invest your money if you're going to go that long. That's what we try and help you do on the Claim and Countdown on Fox Business. I'll see you next time. Want to listen ad-free? You can do it with a Fox News Podcasts Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And then Amazon Prime members, you can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.